I know many of you are troubled by the news coming out of the United States these days, of immigration bans and plans to construct an absurd wall between the United States and Mexico. A few of you have asked me what you can do to fight this kind of oppression, and I think there are a few things. If you're Canadian, email your members of parliament, the leaders of all federal parties, and the candidates running for the Conservative Party leadership. Tell them to act on the U.S. travel ban and explain that you think the acceptance of immigrants and refugees is critical to the success of Canada and other nations around the world. And make sure you CC the Ministers of Foreign Affairs and of Immigration. You should also consider making a donation to the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. They're going to be the organization leading legal challenges against the U.S. President's executive orders, and they'll need all the funding they can get. Canada is a nation of immigrants. Many of us down our family history came from somewhere else. So make sure you acknowledge that and remind your friends and neighbors that you value their contribution. Good luck out there. And now, on with the show. The Arab Spring put Egypt on an entire generation's radar. Before that, our connection to Egypt, or my connection to Egypt anyway, was extremely superficial. Whether it was through that 80s classic Walk Like an Egyptian by the Bengals, or the commonly related fact that the last of the seven wonders of the world, the Pyramids of Giza, remained standing there, Egypt has largely been a source of trivia in my life. A place name we remember because that's where Indiana Jones found the Ark of the Covenant and beat the shit out of some Nazis. Except that those scenes from Raiders of the Lost Ark were actually filmed in Tunisia. Egypt has one of the longest histories of any modern country, dating back to the 10th millennium BC. From the legends of pharaohs like Khufu, Amenhotep, Tutankhamun, and Cleopatra, to the establishment of a British protectorate in 1914, and to the creation of a republic in 1953, Egypt has had a tumultuous political history. The country's key industries include agriculture, steel manufacturing, textile production, and of course, tourism. And then there are the modern Indiana Joneses of Egypt, documenting the region's history by digging and cataloging. And that's where our journey takes us today, to Luxor, Egypt, to learn about life abroad from a photographer-come-traveler on the expats. Welcome to the Expats. I'm your host, Adam Rosenhart, based out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Owen Murray is a good friend of mine whom I rarely see. He spends a lot of time outside of Canada. In Egypt, he's working as a photographer on a number of different heritage projects. Uh, so I am here in Luxor, Egypt, uh, working for a few different projects. Um, I'm a photographer, and over here in Egypt, I've been lucky enough to work with cultural heritage or in the cultural heritage field. So that entails a lot of work with archaeologists, conservators, uh, people associated with studying, uh, recording and documenting cultural heritage. Um, and no, it's not, not my first time. Uh, I came over here uh, to Lahore uh, in 2008 
I uh, job as a photographer for an American research center in Egypt. Uh, they had a project that was based out of Luxor, um, and I, you know, I got the job. I had never imagined myself or thought of myself coming to Egypt. It wasn't really on the radar. Uh, but the job offer and the fact that uh, um, there was a possibility of teaching at the time, a little component, and then and then being involved uh, with archaeologists again um, really caught my attention. It's something that I that I just I jumped on, and and uh, I got into the wild roller coaster ride that. That Egypt has been so it's uh, it's eight years now uh, in in various different kind of capacities. Wow, eight years back and forth between Egypt and Canada. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the first four years uh, from 2008 until 2012, I, I lived. I would say I kind of lived in Egypt, lived in Luxor specifically. Um, we would work uh, nine to ten month seasons. Yeah, nine month seasons. Um, and, and things get pretty hot here in the summertime, just generally throughout the Middle East. Uh, and no one really works. Uh, you don't really spend a lot of time outside if you can manage it. So uh, we would come back, and that was actually wonderful, uh, you know, to be back in Canada for, for summer months. And then come September, we'd be back over again. Uh, and, I, and I lived that life for, for four years uh, while working for this American Research Center as a photographer. Uh, and then made the decision, decided that I wanted to really kind of reconnect with Canada. I, I had spent time, so Egypt wasn't the first place that I lived abroad either. I, I, li- I used to live and work in, in Japan. I was a member of the JET program, which is the Japanese uh, exchange and teaching program. So um, uh, pretty much most of my 20s uh, were spent living outside of Canada as, as an expat. So. From 2004 on, I, I, I hadn't spent a whole ton of time in Canada, kind of, you know, three years in the Japan. I think I came back once for a week. And then after, when I left Japan, I was back in Edmonton for a month before then going on to uh, Turkmenistan with, a, with, a, with a, another Edmonton-based uh, archaeologist, a gentleman called Tish Prouse. And that that kind of that took me to one area of Central Asia, which was fascinating, uh, Turkmenistan. And then out of that experience, that led into another relationship that took me over in, into Oman, uh, which where where I spent time working with an archaeology team there, kind of on 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 the coastal sites that are located in in that region. And then uh, after that, back to Canada for, I think it was two or three months, uh, sitting in my parents' basement, wondering where life was going to go. <laughs> and, and two job opportunities came up. One was to go back to Japan <laughs> and work for uh, Cirque du Soleil, teaching um, uh, different performers, uh, kids, English and, and arts, which, which really uh, appealed to me. And the other job opportunity that kind of came up uh, at a similar time was was to come over and be a photographer for this American Research Center. So it's just funny the way that life goes at, at some points in time. I'd kind of hit a low point. I was, I was in a relationship. I was madly in love. Uh, it didn't work out. And I, I, you know, I found myself being like, oh, man, <laughs> where are things going next? And then these two opportunities came up. And, you know, and then life unravels and, and flows the way that it does. I, uh, I wound up uh, getting the job uh, here and, and taking it and, and coming over. And that's kind of how this all started off. At least the Egypt portion. <laughs> it sounds like a it sounds like a bit of a 
like you're a bit of a yo-yo. I mean, like you're bouncing back and forth between Canada and all these other countries. What is that? Does that create mm-hmm. uh, dissonance in your mind, or is is there any are there any times in your life where you stop and go, "What am I doing?" Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, although, to be honest, the yo-yo. I mean, I, yeah. When when I think about it. The reason I keep coming back to Canada are because there are strong ties there. Family brings me back to Canada. And the more I think now I'm at a place where having gone through my 20s and thinking about how one construes identity, I'm now at a place where I can fully and confidently say I'm Canadian. I I, I was relating this story to a friend the other day talking about uh, growing up in Canada and, and that how uh, a common experience in Canada, I'm not sure whether you, you feel it fit into this uh, as well, is, uh, you know, you, you have a parent that, that is quote-unquote Canadian. Um, you know, my mom was been in Canada for six generations, and my father's British. So, you know, and, and I grew up in a situation where a lot of my friends, uh, through elementary, junior high, high school, were in similar, similar positions, you know. You had, a, you had one parent that, that was born in Canada, and you had another parent that came from outside, married, and, and then, you know, I never thought of it as being different uh, when I was growing up, but I would always reference my identity as, I'm a Canadian butt. <laughs> and I have this line, it's the I'm a Canadian butt line. I'm a Canadian butt, my dad's British. And that kind of was maybe a way of um, um, making it unique or making it something special or, or doing something that, that allowed you to construe your identity in one way. And having spent <laughs> the majority of my 20s outside of, uh, of Canada, but keeping in touch with it in terms of uh, uh, cultural content, I mean, I, an avid listener to CBC, to podcasts, to as much uh, content that I, that I could get my, my hands or my ears on, yeah, it's put me in a place now where I feel much more solid in my Canadian identity. I know what it is to be outside and to live outside. And I also know what it is to be back and to come back. And uh, that's not easy yet to, 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 to get at the, the point that you're, you're, you're talking about in terms of dissonance. Um, it's not uh, always easy to do, but uh, having gone through different waves of it or or having gone through these different periods of it in my life having watched these different arcs kind of happen uh i'm i'm glad that it it has been that way it it puts me in a place where i think you learn different things about your own culture by living outside of it in fact you learn more because there's bits and pieces that you will never ever see or ever understand unless you are kind of somewhat removed from it and for that i'm incredibly thankful yeah, but in terms of the yo-yo thing, I think I think it's also one of those things where you kind of you get a little taste for it, and then all of a sudden, wow! Well, uh, I first went abroad because I wanted to. I had an experience. Um, Seventeen, turning eighteen, I went to a, a YMCA camp growing up as a kid. Uh, spent a lot of summers at a place called the Camp Chief Hector, the Rocky Mountain YMCA down in in Calgary, and the, and the camp was close to CB, Alberta. And in, in one of the final years there, uh, it was after a leadership training program, they had a special program called Sac Denais, and it was uh, the opportunity to, to travel down the Mackenzie River for two months 
so it was this 54 day long canoe trip that went on when I was, I, I had my 18th birthday on that trip and I was with uh, 11 other participants, no, sorry, nine other participants and two leaders. And, and that was really life changing. I mean, uh, you kind of have to take, take this for, for what it's worth, but growing up in, in Edmonton, the cultural stereotypes that you see of, of uh, very important part of our nation, uh, our Aboriginal component, are not always shown in the best light. And I, I'd never thought of myself or considered myself a racist, but it never hit home that there was this completely different way <laughs> that people were living until I was on that on that trip. And that trip was amazing, not only for for the the experience that unraveled or, or and, the, and the things that happened, but that trip was made possible. It, it had its resonance from the fact uh, of the different cultures and communities and peoples that we encountered on the way. It would not have been the same if we, if we had been slogging through 54 days of just uh, harsh Canadian wilderness, or I guess the way of saying it would have, that would have made it a different experience. But I think if you really want to go further back into to how the country is formed, um, none, no, no Europeans would have made it <laughs> had it not been for relationships uh, that were forged with the peoples that inhabited the, the land in the first place, that, that called it home. Yeah. And, and, and thankfully, that those sort of relationships now, I think, are being honored and recognized a little bit more. They're getting a little bit more uh, prominent. Uh, as they well should be. Yeah. Um, but sorry, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say a little bit, but, um, but we, you know, we, I, I don't want us to be patting ourselves on the backs too much because we do have a long way to go still. We do, we do. But if you think about um, where we were 10, maybe even just 15 years ago, there's one thing to, to, to have a system in place that everyone kind of takes for granted that that's just how things work. But if you really want effective change, and I, and I say this with no, no tongue-in-cheek, having been lived through the Egyptian Revolution, what some people call the Arab Spring, um, effective, true change doesn't just happen overnight. You can ask anyone that w was involved, well, unfortunately, I think they'd all be dead by now, but uh, anyone that lived through the French Revolution and the turmoil that happened the 10 years after, after that, I, there, when you go through structural changes and reforms on societal levels, um, there are many different friction points that can arise and it doesn't always go nicely. Yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> um, definitely. So, so what I'd like to say in terms of the Canadian context is that, uh, no, it, it, it hasn't been right, but to have things like the truth and reconciliation committee come about and to have people, uh, to give people, to give Canadians, regardless of whether they uh, identify as being first nations or whether they, you know, that they are, or French or English or whatever you want to call yourself to have the ability to sit down and listen to a story and and to hear what someone else's experience has been like uh, that's a that's a big step For because sure. once you start listening then then you can share right yeah and when you really look at how cultures construe themselves um, and and what makes up the fabric of a nation I mean it's it's stories it's the stories we tell each, ourselves and each other uh, cultural content is extremely important for the very reasons that that's how people form and set values. It's how you talk about a, a shared experience that gives its its strength of that that thing to the people that that are talking about it. 
that makes sense. Yeah, no, and it's interesting that you're bringing it up because, and you mentioned that you you lived through the experience of the Arab Spring. So I actually want to bring the conversation back to Egypt because you you sure. clearly have thought about this an awful lot uh, through, <laughs> through through your experiences. It's, it's the upside of the yo-yo. Yeah, exactly. So so you've had these these amazing experiences as a, as a young person in Canada, starting to think about the first peoples and and their relationship to to the country and and to european canadians and you you went through this thing in egypt you were there when it happened what was that like <laughs> well i'm going to disappoint you because um to to share that experience I, I think a lot of people when they when they heard about the arab spring and this brings us to another kind of point in how people talk about experiences and living abroad and how people actually get information um, and, 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 and also how that information source is, is rapidly changing, uh, used uh, by, the, by, by some familiar with the dark arts most recently in a, in a country to the south of us. Um, it's, <laughs> there's a, there's a mini media manipulation component now about how people, uh, let's say, digest news sources. Mm -hmm. So of course the experience of living in Egypt through a period like that is, is very different than what you will read about said events. Uh, even if it's coming through wonderful CBC correspondents like, uh, Nahla Ayed, I'm, I may be getting her name wrong there. Probably going to have to say it properly and you'll have to edit it. In. <laughs> no. Um, but there's, there's a number of different, uh, people that e even doing their, their best Robert Fisk is a, is a great, uh, journalist that writes about situations and, and stories and, and things that happen within the Middle East. They're, they're Patrick Weir. They're, they're, there are many talented journalists that do it, but it, never, it will never, ever be able to encapsulate that experience. And, and also what it's like for the people of that nation going through it. Yeah. I mean, even for myself uh, living it, my lived experience of a period like that is very different from the experience of, of, of Egyptians of, of many different uh, class and, and age. And it's, it's, it's hard to encapsulate. Well, but, but I'll say this. Luxor is a very different place, or it's more removed from some of the, the urban centers like Cairo and Alexandria and Ismail, and places where elements of the revolution or where organization and, and things like that uh, happened a little bit more. Um, Luxor was, was, was quiet. It was relatively quiet. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, it's a, a very large tourism economy down here. Right. Uh, and that when, when events like that, that happen, people make decisions. Of course, decisions have to be made. Oh, you know, uh, the, the, the Foreign Service is going to say, no, we don't advise you going to the country because the risk of something happening during a time like that, even though on the streets not much was going on, that you, you could still live without being in danger. Mm -hmm. uh, you, it's, it's just the risk goes up. And of course, you have to you have to you have to put out statements like that. You, you don't want people coming over and you don't you don't want the unfortunate irresponsible let's say canadians in a, in a context coming over and you know like oh yeah we, we just wanted to see the country it was like totally cool eh? and like <laughs> and then we got caught up in like throwing rocks and 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 and, and everyone just goes oh god yeah. you know like and it just makes things, it can add a layer of tension at a time like that 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 is not helpful and or or welcome so um 
So yeah. if, if you were in Luxor at the time, uh, you were mm-hmm. you were you're trying to stay away from some of those urban centers. But but one of the things yeah, that, that you were. Clear. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that you said was, you know, what you experienced and and even what Egyptians participating in that would have experienced is not their their stories may not have aligned with what we were reading in the news. Not at all. No, I would say in in a large part uh, you could get you could gain insight into what was going on, but you have to remember that the news is always being written for someone, right? Mm-hmm. The news there's a business element to news, uh, whether you like it or not. I mean, it, it, it's not going to function any other way. Although perhaps there are some possibilities for that finding different modes of expression now. But uh, a classic example could be the type of podcast that 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 you are conducting, right? Yes, I'm um, in no one's pocket, Owen. <laughs> well, uh, we'll we'll see about that. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, just just to say that 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 there there's a certain element of business in in any interaction or or and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, it can be quite healthy. I guess is what I'm trying to get at. But um, the the fact that news is being written for a population necessitates in some ways that you know a canadian correspondent is writing for a canadian audience exactly and and, and to take it even larger you know uh, in, in western european countries the news is being written for western european individuals citizens mm-hmm. uh, people that have a certain worldview that have gone through shared collective experiences and how those countries and nations have formed how they see themselves so a lot of the time the way the news is even construed or talked about can be written in a way that reinforces those values and opinions even if the author or the journalist themselves is not consciously aware of doing so yeah and that's fair and and it's you know it's an interesting discussion and one mm. of the things that i'm interested in though and i'll be i'll be completely biased about this is your sure. your opinion of of life in egypt i mean you've been there a few times what are tell me about the egyptian people uh and tell me about how canadians are regarded in egypt no oh, that's a great question egyptian people and how canadians are regarded in egypt mm-hmm. uh so i'm i'm giving you the 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 the, the fast or the long and the short of um where are you from where are you from where are you from uh, and say, are you Canada? Oh, is that America? <laughs> like, so, so it, it'd be kind of like, you know, over here, the equivalent would be, be saying, finding out that someone is, is, uh, from the Middle East and saying, oh, oh, you're, you're from Saudi Arabia. Uh, what's it like in Morocco? You know, like people don't always have that awareness Yeah. in, in the same way, you know, Rick Mercer did a wonderful thing segment, uh, uh, talking with Americans Albeit, you know, he, he used the edit function, hopefully, a little more than he, he encountered. <laughs> but <laughs> that just goes to show you that there's a certain level of ignorance that exists in any society, in any different cultural context. So how are Canadians um, considered uh, over here? I think a lot of the time, I mean, we live in the shadow of, of, of America in some ways. Yeah. Uh, the fact that I got offered a job that I worked for an American research center, the fact that I'm working for a project now that is an American university <laughs> Um, that I'm working also for another project that is kind of a joint joint interest between the uh, University of Memphis, uh, University of Quebec and Montreal. Yeah, we don't have a huge, huge footprint. But for what it is, I, I think that there are different levels of uh, awareness of different uh, cultural identities. Um, and that, uh, 
within a business community. Um, you know, we have different Canadian interests in in parts of uh, Egypt, and that 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 we are well regarded. Mm-hmm. Um, Egyptian people, like many people throughout the world, are 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 fine human beings. Just wanting to live their life and curious about where you come from and, and what your life would be like and and uh, and and very very exuberant and happy and outgoing to show you what what their life is and and what and what it's like i mean if you if you kind of want the litmus test the litmus test is to talk with kids to see how they construe their worldview and i have an experience or i had the experience and it, and it happens every once in a while now as well where where a kid is 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 trying to kind of figure out where you might be from, it happens more so in Luxor because they're used to so many different uh, uh, nations coming through and 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 the tourism trade, and th- and they'll be trying to work out, oh, where are you from? Are you are you from here? Are you from there? Uh, there's all these different little clues: the way that someone would dress, the the way that someone talks, even the the accent that that, that comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- those sort of questions from from a kid trying to work out where you would be from. And another big one for them as well is 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 religious. You get I get asked, what's so are you are you this or are you that, you know, um, and th- and that's always interesting too because that's also you get you really gain an insight into how cultural identities are formed, yeah, how people no think about themselves, and how sub identities or minority interests or minority identities are construed within a within a larger context too. So um, I, I need to kind of stay on point. Uh, uh, my experience in Egypt has been amazing uh, in in many ways. It's been a roller coaster. It's mm-hmm. not always easy, but on whole, when I think about it, yeah, it's it's been pretty incredible to be able to have had the life that I've been living here. I, I was just going to ask. You know, you you say it's been a roller coaster. There have been some ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Maybe if if you could tell us a little bit of what some of those challenges have been uh, trying to adapt to life in Egypt. Sure. Okay. So things work differently here. I mean, go figure, eh? <laughs> uh, as they often do in, in, in many different places. The reason that they work different, though, is for the same kind of reasons that we've been touching on in, in our conversation. I mean, you get used to a certain type of life. You get used to certain creature comforts. You get used to people interacting with one another in, in a certain way. Decorum, for lack of a better word. Uh, social interactions, norms, values, shared values, those sort of things. And it's not that uh, people in any, any group of people in any part of the world lack those values. And sometimes this is what gets dropped and, and what gets picked up on more in, in uh, uh, let's call it ignorant or biased news reporting. Mm-hmm. Because if you really want an example of where those values go out the window, it's either war-torn or it's an, a, a kind of an apocalyptic scenario, mm-hmm. which, which I think you could argue that, that war is. In those areas, societal structures, the way that people interact with one, it starts to fall apart. You yeah. really get to see it fall apart. And in the situations where it's not, oftentimes it's, it's not that those, those value sets and those ways of interacting aren't there. It's that it's just done differently. Sure. There was a great, there was a great phrase from, from Japan, same, same, but different. You know, they, there was even T-shirts with it plastered <laughs> all over. Same, same, but different. Um, and that speaks to not only how different cultures and nations work, but it also speaks to different individuals' experiences of those places. So what have some of the challenges been 
for me specifically in Egypt, things don't work the way that uh, things work in Canada. Yeah. Uh, bureaucracy anywhere can be slow moving to respond. There are certain, uh, I guess you could say there would be certain frustrations in, in how things are done. But the frustration perhaps comes from expectation. Yeah. This is the best way to talk about it. Right. When you expect something to happen a certain way and then it doesn't, uh, that can cause a plethora of different emotions and a plethora of different reactions. And when you then react in a way that is construed or that can be construed as uh, angry or annoyed or whatever it is, more often than not, the emotional content of the response triggers another response. And that happens time and time and time again. Right. And it happens a little bit more often, I would say, en masse within the Middle East, if I'm going to make horrible, stereotypical generalizations. Mm -hmm. That's what we're all about on this show. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> emotional, emotional, visceral, emotional reaction to events perpetuates cycles that have been uh, ongoing for millennia hmm. here. Now, so what does Canada or what does growing up Canadian bring to this context? Growing up in Canada, especially uh, if you are, if you're, if you're, um, not risk adverse per se. If you're, uh, if you don't like conflict, like an individual such as myself, and if we hearken back to perhaps a little more liberal um, idea of of what Canada brings to the table in sort of a, a a multinational international context, it's that we know how to negotiate difference without desponding into uh, uh, states, war-torn states of different identities. Now, we have that within our milieu of, of history of where we come from as a nation. But we also have this wonderful ability to build consensus, right? Mm -hmm. So what we do, the whole fabric of how Canada even exists, its strength even, is in being able to bridge the gap. Uh, that skill set, I think, is necessary in many, many different places in the world. I, I think under a Trudeau government, you're starting to see that uh, frame of reference come back into play. Um, it's not that we are necessarily peacemakers. It's it's that we can bring to the table different groups or different factions and get them to, to talk with one another. It's that we know that we don't have to respond to the emotional slight or insult. Right. And that there is something better that exists beyond that. So it's almost like if I could use a Canadian stere stereotype, not that we're not a country of risk takers, because of course, you know, there are there are some of us who are, but it's maybe that that yes. Canadian quality of being quick to jump to say, I'm sorry, actually benefits the way that we 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 interact with with other countries or, or people from other countries. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge part of it. I mean, if your first reaction is to say, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, you can make a great comedy skits out of it, and, and you can also uh, you can also ensue that that someone doesn't have uh, uh, enough uh, strength or or own self. Well, I mean, our American friends south of us will always say, "Oh, don't, don't they just apologize?" Oh, isn't it cute? Yeah. You know, but but what they don't understand is that underneath that, I'm sorry, it it creates the space for for another conversation or another reaction to happen. And that it doesn't force, or what's the way to say it? What the best way to say it is, it leaves open a space for for further conversation. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't see you there. 
I, I suppose if you're a really you know hard-headed, vindictive Canadian, maybe you did see them there, <laughs> and then you just wanted to kind of dig it in. But hey, even better for us then too. Yeah, right? you, can, yeah. you can hit them twice, right? You can you can slight them not only uh, physically, but you can get in the dig afterward. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm sorry. no. But in but in 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 without making light of it too much. Yeah, no. Uh, it if that's one of the first reactions that that you have, and it's an honest one, which I think it it happens more often than not. Yeah, it's wonderful. It it creates a space. Oh, I bumped into you in this. Oh, I'm sorry. I, you know, like I didn't see that. I didn't see that coming. Or um, it's it's very different than than. Uh, than being in, in a context where uh, you bump into someone and then in order to feel that you need to ask or, or, or assert your identity uh, as an individual or within a group or, or you know, if you want to get into kind of like a, a national context or construction of identity that way, that your first reaction is to, uh, to be aggressive or to, to, to push back in a certain way. I mean, the very, the very fact that something like that could happen uh, then can almost dictate the situation. You can start seeing courses of action unfold that are unfolding not from the incident itself, but because of, I guess what you could almost call it is coded behavior, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you did this, therefore this happens. That might be a good way of talking about um, interactions and kind of what happens in, in the Middle East in a larger context too. Um, you're, you're looking at civilizations that are, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years old not that the the first nations uh component of of, of our canadian civilization uh is not that old uh it it's it's that old if not longer and we still have as you as you as you pointed out earlier much to learn mm -hmm. um, from that lived experience in in the land that we all now call home but at the same time if you look at uh western european uh, uh integration or involvement into Canada, uh, North America. Um, our history there is, I mean, we're young. <laughs> yeah. What are we? 400 years, 300 yeah. years, not even. So in a way to also understand the Middle East, you, you, you understand coded behavior, uh, and whether it's through fluke or circumstance, that's that it, we're still in, in some ways in, in a Canadian context, we're still setting that it's still being formed, right? Interesting. So that even makes the I'm sorry sentiment that much greater. Because if that's going to be the go-to reaction, if that means that you can, that you can open up a space for, for someone else to, to also not feel intimidated or stepped on or, or, or uh, put out. Yeah. It's, interesting. it's interesting what you're saying, Owen, because if I'm interpreting it correctly, you're saying that what a lot of people perceive as a weakness, maybe for some Canadians, we're too polite, weird, we're too quick to say sorry, is actually a huge strength in opening up dialogue with people from other cultures. And maybe, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth by saying this, but maybe that's one of our greatest exports. It is. It is. I mean, to, to all the, the hardline, I don't want to call them conservatives, to, to, to the people that are, to the Canadians that may be listening to this that are thinking like, nah, this guy's full of shit. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> no. Saying sorry doesn't imply weakness. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean that you uh, don't think that something should be done. It doesn't mean that you don't value or that you, that you don't hold your own values strongly enough that someone is infringing on them. It's actually, it's actually, a, it's more of an awareness. 
It's an awareness of exactly what those value sets are, plus the ability to to extend. It's it's empathy at its at its finest in a way, right? Yeah. You create empathy by having through your through your expressions and through through your actions in in good context in, in the best of context. I was going to say, so you're you're committed to spreading empathy in an Owen Murray Canadian way throughout Egypt until April of 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Hey, there we go. Is I it, will I will keep doing my bit as a Canadian abroad, chattering and mumbling away in, in the Arabic that I know, and, and uh, sowing as many good vibes as I possibly can. That concludes this episode of The Expats. If there are any expats you think I should be speaking with, have them email me at info at expatspodcast.ca or send me an email yourself. And let's keep building this global network of Canadians living abroad. I've been your host, Adam Rosenhart. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to The Expats on the iTunes Music Store, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. And make sure you leave us a review. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch up again in a couple of weeks. Music